HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, Food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of, of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I literally go around little slips of paper and, and, and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Heritage Foods and Heritage Radio Network founder, Patrick Martins. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Patrick about Heritage Radio Network's origin story, what Heritage Foods is all about and we'll hear Patrick's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. One of the tenets behind Julia's decision to create the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts is for people to better understand what constitutes good food and where it comes from. Julia knew to cook well and eat well required an understanding of what today is most often referred to as sustainable practices. The bottom line to Julia and the many chefs and artisans who educated her is the more you understand about where your food comes from, who raises it, and how, the more you value not only what you're eating, but what it took to get it on your plate. While this is a philosophy very prevalent among chefs, Julia's goal was to extend this awareness to the home cook and eventually to every eater. It remains a goal and purpose of the foundation. It's also a goal and a purpose behind Heritage Radio Network. Hence, why the foundation hosting its own show on HRN is such a good fit. And in the spirit of full disclosure, the foundation has provided grants to underwrite some of HRN's other programs, like Heritage on Tour and Meet Plus 3, and also to support internships and general program development at HRN. The foundation is very proud to have helped play a small part in supporting HRN's growth and is grateful to have the privilege of this platform to share our world with a wider audience. With HRN celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, it seemed only fitting that we would take a beat and talk about 
how exactly did all of this happen? Who better to fill us in than HRN founder Patrick Martins? Patrick is also the founder of Heritage Foods, a purveyor of heritage breeds of meat and poultry, among other things, as well as the co-founder with Alice Waters of Slow, Slow Food USA. If you're sensing a pattern, we're definitely talking about another innovator. We're delighted to have him here today to share more about HRN's history and get his insights on, well, meat. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. It's our pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you about about history and the future, I think. For sure. So before we talk about HRN and its founding, I think we, we need to start with how Heritage Foods came about. So, so tell us, how did that happen? Um, well, Heritage Foods started in the U.S. as the marketing arm of Slow Food USA. Uh, one of Slow Food's big projects was an ark project, and it was like a metaphorical Noah's Ark. And onto that ark, they boarded foods and drinks on the brink of extinction, either because of consumer apathy or because, you know, factory farming corporations didn't want to embrace the slower growing breeds, even though they might have been tastier. And so uh, Slow Food put a number of endangered foods onto that arc in the U.S., the Blenheim apricot, there was the green mountain potato, but there were also four varieties of heritage turkeys. They were considered endangered. They were very rare. And as people, some people know, most people know hopefully by now, is the way to save endangered livestock species is to eat them. And so Heritage Foods was kind of started to bring teeth to the ark. Uh, Carlo Petrini, the founder of Sofu, called it a presidia, a presidium, singular presidia, plural, which is uh, literally translated as like a military garrison, like an aggressive tactic to save an endangered food. So for us, that was Thanksgiving with a heritage turkey. And about a thousand people, uh, so food members, purchased a turkey the first year in 2002. And that led to other relationships with farmers and uh, other interventions on behalf of endangered livestock breeds. So, yeah, I think people often wonder but don't necessarily ask about the, the, the name of the network being heritage and what the heritage refers to. And, you know, it, it's kind of branded to a lot of things. So... In this case, you're you're going back to this b- biblical reference of of the virtual ark and the parlance that I think already existed about rare or or uh, disappearing breeds of of um, food, right? That's the yes. heritage. Well, the first person that we started with the turkeys, and there was this fantastic person who is actually a member of Heritage Radio Network's 10th anniversary Hall of Fame. Each month, we're putting about 35 people into this Hall of Fame, most interesting people, uh, keepers of our culture, if you will, who've been on the network in the past 10 years. And Frank Reese, a turkey farmer and a chicken farmer, duck, geese, all types of poultry was was on it. He's been on the station, and he wanted to call it, he calls his heritage breeds of turkey standard bread poultry. That is the actual official name that the USDA and the American Poultry Association, which is America's oldest agricultural organization, uh, they refer to it as standard bread breeds. But because we didn't think that was a good marketing word, we came up with heritage. Uh, And we were almost trying to win back that word a little bit from the more conservative connection to that word, the heritage conservancy and this and that. And it just seemed like the word that these turkeys got ascribed to in, in marketing. And so we just called ourselves Heritage Foods. And so we're a company, but Heritage Foods has also kind of become a term, a loosely defined term about old livestock breeds with lineages lineages and uh, histories here in the U.S. Well, and let's talk about a little bit more about what Heritage Foods is as a company, because mm-hmm. I, it's kind of, I think, an interesting cross between a business and a crusade. Mm-hmm. And um, with probably, I w- I'm sure you're going to say the business is a, is a key part of it, but it, it has ha- has a very specific mission that started with these, these rare well, not rare, but disappearing breed of turkeys, right? Yep. So uh, basically, every single week, we 
Well, we partner with farms if uh, who had a history raising heritage breeds, these rare breeds like the Berkshire pig or the Gloucester Old Spot pig or the Tamworth pig or the Bourbon Red Turkey or the Tunis lamb. And we would meet these farms and they said, hey, you know, we're very small right now, but we'd really like to grow. We really believe that more Americans should be eating these beautifully marbled, very tasty heritage breeds, even though they take much longer to grow. But we can't just grow them until we have a, an order for them because the only safe outlet for meat in the U.S. is the commodity market, which pays pennies to the pound for what the farmer deserves. And so no one was really launching flocks or uh, herds of heritage breeds. But thanks to chef culture, and I'll, I'll get to this during, with my Julia moment, but mm. uh, you know, chef culture, which she really started, I think, in this country, for the first time, chefs became celebrities and they started to command economies. So a chef of Bamafuko Sambar or of uh, Lupa Restaurant or of Gramercy Tavern could be like, go, make that farmer raise thousands and thousands of those rare breeds and our restaurant group will be here to buy those cuts. And so it was a very beautiful uh, you know, connection between chefs in America's great restaurants and these farmers in the Midwest that had these heritage breeds. So for the first time, they were incentivized to increase production of their rare breeds. And even though it was on a handshake agreement, they believed so much in preserving these rare breeds for future generations that they jumped in and started raising the animals. So on a very simple level, we do 200 pigs a week, 52 weeks a year that go all across the country to restaurants and also via FedEx to individual homes. We do 10,000 turkeys every Thanksgiving. Uh, heritage breeds from four different rare breeds. And then we do small amounts of lamb, goat, duck, goose, sometimes even rabbit. And now we've kind of gotten into the oven-ready roast world where we send uh, our heritage breeds to great artisans and cure masters and they make value-added roasts. And actually one thing that we're very proud of, I just saw Carlo Petrini at the Good Food Awards in San Francisco and he said to me, you know, teasing a little bit, but he's like, I'm not interested in meeting people. I want to meet products. I want to see products that exist here in the U.S. and around the world where I travel, you know, that are good, clean, and fair, that are part of the community. So one of the things we're very proud of in that vein is Heritage Prosciutto. We actually have nine or eight cure masters in the United States long aging our hams from our pigs. These are two to three year aging processes. So the fact that these guys are raising these rare breeds and that these cure masters are curing these rare breeds, it really means that, you know, gastronomy in the United States is more interesting, more depth, more has more depth, it's more diverse, it's more tasty, more palatable. So it is very, very cool. Well, and I think what's really interesting is, and I'm being humorous in a way, but like you guys, you don't make anything, you don't own any assets, you're in in, in an old-fashioned way, you're a middleman, but it's a middleman with kind of this progressive agenda, right? That you're not you're not just a you are a distributor. Well, I have a just... I have a more romantic uh, way of describing it. Uh, I always Good. like being romantic about my own work. So uh, my my I would say uh, Helen Keller had a great quote, and I'm sure I'm going to mess it up. But she said the world is pushed along not only by the great shoves of it heroes, but also by each tiny push from each honest worker. And I think what Heritage Foods does, uh, and everybody on my team and Heritage Radio Network, is we work to coordinate the tiny pushes of each honest worker. So we kind of mobilize those tiny pushes. So in the end, it ends up becoming a heroic push, but because of the group uh, of people doing it. So that's the way we like to see it. Because a distributor might also just call and buy something when it's available. We actually commit to the animals before they're born. So we always have to sell them. We can't take a week off or decide that one Thanksgiving we're going to not buy the whole flock. Uh, these birds are being raised for us. These pigs are being raised for us, these lamb. So it is actually more of like a community-supported agriculture feel versus than just the middleman. Yeah, it's a more symbiotic relationship. Yeah. 
And so I wanted to ask you about this ARG, which I'm assuming we're talking about a virtual ARG. Mm-hmm. Since since the time that, that Slow Food put that list together, what would you say, what's the status of the animals on the ARG? Um, well, the census counts for livestock are kept by different groups. So here we have the Livestock Conservancy. They are a nonprofit organization based out of North Carolina that actually keeps census counts for any one of, you know, probably five or 600 types of breeds of cows, of poultry, um, and even things that we don't eat, like horses. Uh, you know, the Clydesdale horses are actually endangered. And so Budweiser has been one of the great saviors of that horse, actually, through their farms and by bringing attention to the Clydesdale. So, um, you know, the status from Slow Food is that it's created these lists that's the first thing. It's they've created an archive. Uh, that's kind of what's cool about Heritage Radio Network too. It's a, it's an archive. You know, we've created a database. So Slow Food basically laid the foundation for projects to be launched around these foods, and it's also just brought attention in general to the fact that we're losing biodiversity in the world, and that we're losing plant varieties and food varieties. And then Slow Food even takes it a step further and say we're losing regional cuisines and people who know certain recipes. So um, I think they really just help shine the attention on we have to wake up and start respecting our past and understanding our connection to it and not be you know kind of flattened and homogenized by this fast food culture of ours. Mm. Yeah, it's both preservationist and environmental and um, with an underlay of what is delicious. It's actually, yeah, it's very interesting that you say that. Yeah, it's it's through two things. Uh, so I do a show on the Heritage Radio Network called The Main Course, and we had uh, the chef of Mamafuku Nishi, uh, which is, an, you know, one of David Chang's restaurants. And we also had the mm. owner of Oliveto, which is a historic Berkeley restaurant, kind of, you know, 10, 20 years after Chez Panisse, but in the Chez Panisse vein. So Nishi was actually into innovation. And that's very important component towards preserving our past is innovation and doing new things to it. Meanwhile, Bob, the owner of Oliveto Restaurant, uh, said that his innovation comes through depth and going deep into something like a dish or a certain pasta recipe or something like that. So through innovation and depth together, you know, we have the means to preserve our food history and culture and come up with new ways of, of making it current again. Thank God for heritage breeds. They're better marbled. They are more juicy. They're more tender. So a lot of that battle is taken just by how good they taste and how bad their commodity cousins taste. Yeah, as Julia was an advocate of the pleasure principle being a factor. Of course, that's pleasure drives all things. And also, as you, I like the way you said gastronomy as part of this uh, podcast. You use that word. Uh, Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food, was a big believer in the fact that people don't see gastronomy as a science. Uh, like anthropology or sociology. Mm, mm. But really, gastronomy is that one discipline that actually embraces all of them. Sociology, anthropology, botany, zoology, trade, cooking. I mean, we all know about cooking, but there's really, it touches on everything. Um, biology. So, yeah, gastronomy is a great word. And I would like it to be said when I die that I helped the cause of gastronomy. You know, um, it's a cool discipline. Well, last week, Megan Elias, who is the director of the gastronomy program at BU, said that I was a gastronomer. So I am happy to say mm-hmm. that you, too, are a gastronomer. I just I love that. Yeah, it's uh, it understands food and all of its facets. Well, and I, and I think that the other thing that's neat about gastronomy is, yes, you could say it's a social science, but then that includes the knowledge of cooking. And I think all too often, in a good way, cooking is associated with art and skill and mm-hmm. craftsmanship. But it's forgotten how much of a basis chemistry is Uh of cooking, and and it just sort of gets overlooked, um, I think, too often. Yes, absolutely. Chemistry, science, technology, yeah, I mean, really, there's it touches everything. 
Okay, so now I have to ask you the, the hard-hitting question that I, I, I'm sure you've answered multiple times, but I, I think it's important because I'm sure we have plenty of listeners who's, who've reduced their meat consumption or vegetarian or even gone vegan. So, And we've been talking a lot about sustainability issues, and I think a lot of people think that that's a great shortcut to being more environmentally conscious. So do you believe we can make meat eating and meat raising sustainable? Uh, yes, I do. Um, you know, Michael Pollan always said that, uh, you know, people say could slow food feed the world. And he's like, well, fast food is not feeding the world. You know, there's still a lot of people who don't have food. Um, I do believe it can be sustainable. I was actually on a panel with Peter Singer, this environmentalist and uh, animal humane treatment uh godfather really he talked about experiments with animals uh, like for shampoos and this and that but he also talked about factory farming and on that panel he said if all the farms in america were like heritage foods is there would have been no need for his seminal books you know on that subject and for the vegetarian movement to have really been pushed because those types of animals are not the problem it's the factory farmed animals that are um we believe that meat should cost more and that people should eat less of it. Uh, we have this great saying uh, from a chef friend of ours, Antoine Westerman from Le Coquerico. He says, eat the best meat or no meat at all. And that's a great, great line for meat. You know, you don't have to eat it if it's bad. That being said, I had a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich on a roll this morning, and God knows where that bacon came from, but that's okay, too. You know, it's about a slow turning of the wheel. You know, it's about those big companies or even the ham cure masters that I was talking about earlier, slowly steering their ship to also include heritage breeds, pasture raised, antibiotic free, things like that. Yeah, it, it feels right now that for I was going to ask you what core things need to change to make this possible. But it feels right now that the factory farming thing is such a huge industrial and widespread enterprise. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to figure out or to foresee how do we change things? And, and have you guys, particularly in your involvement with Slow Food mm -hmm. or these other panels, have you kind of identified at least the more chipping away at at, at change points that will start to 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 create the evolution? Well, you know, heritage foods, and I didn't mention this earlier, we have a very narrow focus on what we're trying to do, and that's to promote biodiversity in the food supply. That's our thing. And so on that conversation topic, the genetics of the animals, we actually are extremely important to these factory farms. And we do have high hopes that things can change because what, what's basically happened with the advent of factory farming in the 60s and 50s, they they the heritage breeds were the foundational genetics for the factory farm system you know everything was a heritage breed before you know in the 30s and before that but what happened is when the factory farming system took over and when artificial insemination was invented and that made it a lot easier to control things they selectively bred they for certain traits and for the first time in history those traits were not health and ability to produce offspring and strength and intelligence. For the first time, it was like an overabundance of white breast meat or whiter colored meat or fast growth. And so it ended up being these very same heritage breeds just became somewhat deformed over 50 and 60 years and are actually quite unhealthy genetically. Uh, you know, chickens are obese basically by the time they're processed and they should not be obese. Uh, in the past, if you had an obese chicken, you would pull that from the flock and not let it reproduce. In factory farming system, an obese chicken is a, is a gold mine because it means that you can get the chickens to be fatter. And so, you know, Heritage Foods actually believes that they've created such inbred and overbred and unbalanced livestock at Purdue or Smithfield or any of these places that they actually do need to look back at their past and come to some of the farms we work with and get some of their strong genetics in back into their system. Um, as for the confinement and the feed, I mean, those are other battles too that must be fought. But we just want to see a stronger genetic foundation to the livestock industry around the world. And we also don't want to see one or two companies producing all the chickens that the world eats. 
That is not a secure food system when two companies produce 99% of the world's pulse and eggs. And, and I think j- just to round this out, um, maybe I think it's helpful to underline or triple underline what, and I'm going to ask you the dumbest question, but what's the benefit of the biodiversity? You were starting to go into that, but is there a way to say it in a nutshell so people really take away why that biodiversity matters? Yeah, I mean, you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. You know, I, I give a lot of examples, you know, of the flu. Everyone at the office, you know, the flu comes, but only like a third of the people get sick. Uh, the other people are immune to the flu. So, you know, it's because there's different people, different genetics. Um, the Irish potato famine, there were hundreds of varieties of tuber that would have survived that blight. But because they only have one kind of potato, they starved. Um, you know, so you want a diverse gene pool. You never want something to go extinct. And then there's also the cultural thing, like just like we preserve our church history and our architecture and our old buildings, you know, varieties of food that were raised on farms that have hundreds or sometimes even thousands of years of traditions across borders and all that, they must not get lost. There's recipes and cultures and tastes and flavors that are, you know, connected to the people of places. So fast food might want to homogenize all that. The hamburger tastes the same everywhere, no matter where you go, which McDonald's you go to. But um, food and livestock and recipes don't have to be like that. So you heard it here first that the, 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 the old saw, don't put all your eggs in one basket, actually originally did refer to food. <laughs> yes, it did. Easy to remember. (laughs) Thanks for that one. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and afterwards we're going to talk to Patrick about how Heritage Radio Network was born. Are heritage breeds important to you? Are you more conscious about your meat consumption? Let us know what you think about the future of meat eating. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Welcome back. We're talking to Heritage Radio Network and Heritage Foods founder, Patrick Martins, about his innovations and innovative ideas. Okay, so Patrick, when you were a young boy, had you always dreamed about having your own food radio empire? Is that what made you decide to start Heritage Radio Network? Yeah, I wanted to be a a pig broker, a Jewish pig broker with my own radio empire. And I just stayed with (laughs) that. That was always the dream. Since I was five. And it just teaches you don't give up on your dreams, stick with it and you can get you can make it happen. That's what Lady Gaga says. Exactly. That's what she said. She's like, (laughs) if you're sitting on your couch, just believe. Hopefully you have a voice as good as mine. But anyway, just believe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. A musical talent and a beautiful voice. Hopefully all, you have the best you voice So, of so all since time. you didn't have those, or maybe you do have those, and, and then you thought a radio network. Well, I definitely don't have the best face for it, so that's why I chose radio, not television. <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, no, we picked radio because, um, you know, it's a very democratic technology. You know, uh, before smoke 
uh, messaging and, and letters <laughs> and all that, you know, all of a sudden radio could be anyone could have a radio, a fisherman on his boat or, uh, you know, different farming communities could alert each other, you know, to storms coming or, you know, all of a sudden the radio is very democratic. It's very inexpensive to put a radio station together. And uh, there's something subversive about it. You know, there's something subversive about a radio station. So we just thought it was the perfect, uh, the, the perfect way to help change food culture was actually through radio, which then became podcasts. And uh, by the way, Carlo Petrini had started a radio station in northern Italy in 1975 called Radio Bra Red Waves. And so that was why we were thinking about radio when we started Slow Food here in the States. It's because he had done that 30 years earlier. And bra refers to, just so there's no confusion, where Slow Food started, which is a place in Italy right yep. called Bra. Right near Turin, right near Alba, the truffle capital of the world. And and so going back to Carlo's idea and then yours, was the goal to be a disruptor or was it just you saw, oh, this is a great way to effectively spread new messages? Well, Carlo's goal was to overthrow fast food culture and promote the importance of good, clean and fair food in our daily lives. For us, we just wanted to be an alternative, you know, to what we saw as the largely corporate agenda of food media. Um, you know, we noticed that the only way to read serious food stories was like in the business sections or the metro sections, the food sections of the big newspapers and food magazines. They just covered food as fashion, celebrity chefs, recipes. No one talked about global warming and the effect that global warming might have on food or uh, feed or antibiotics in the food supply or the loss of biodiversity. You would have to go to other sections to read about that stuff. And that always seemed absurd to us. And then there were also all these people, the truckers, the farmers, the distributors, the chefs, you know, they might get interviewed by NPR or different types of organizations like that, but they might only be interviewed for 10 minutes in their entire life. And they probably had a lot more to say, a lot more to offer. Um, and, and their thoughts needed to be revisited more frequently and across different platforms to different audiences. So, you know, we thought that the network and a bunch of hosts coming in each week, you know, would be a good way of, of getting that information out and archiving it for the future. And I, I was just thinking how interesting it is that Carlo in Italy, which to me, at least as in Western countries, has one of the least proliferations of fast food um, into society. And while it exists there, it, 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 it's a smaller percentage of, mm -hmm. of the commerce and food. But that he felt it was already, and maybe from his global travels or, or whatever, but what was that relationship where he was already feeling that it ne needed to be overthrown or was it more health related? I think on a very local level, Carlo is a guy born and raised in a little medieval town. I think he just thought the bread was not as good <laughs> and the cheese was not as good. Yeah. And I think that he looked at Barolo and Barbaresco producers, you know, right around him and the Nebbiolo grape, which they raise. And he was like, you guys, he's like, I know about wine and you guys should be making the best wine in the world, not the worst, because you're making the worst right now. This was in the 70s. So I think he was just, his palate got bored and he sensed that the artisans were becoming lazy and arrogant or just they were unambitious. So he was like, we got to age the grapes longer we got to, you know, age the cheeses longer. We need to find affineurs who are able to age the cheeses longer. Uh, you know, we need to find our old recipes that our grandmother produced. Uh, uh, there's this capon that's raised in Mont Montforte, this little town. Let's get 5,000 of these capons to be raised. And, you know, he was into good meals. So it was, it was gastronomy in a way, his, his mouth that led him. As it does many. I mean, I think for me, the canary in the coal mine is I've spent, and not that my French is any better, but I've spent a lot of time in France over the course of my adult life. And one of the, the most profound and sad things to me that I notice is the denigration of quality of the average croissant, which is yeah. should be like the French national food. Mm -hmm. And that's profoundly disturbing to me that in a country 
like France, that similar Italy, where food mm-hmm. is and has been always part of an elevated element of their culture, mm-hmm. that you're seeing that rapid deterioration, and and it it it's it's so worrying. So, do mm-hmm. you think that kind of that's that's the effort that collectively you see and want Heritage Radio Network to be kind of fighting against? Well, yes. I mean, you asked one well, one question. I saw. Uh, which I said you might ask was slow or local. And yeah. the answer is 99% slow is better. Slow means quality. Slow is about quality. And I think that the local movement uh, too often props up a second or third rate food just because it's close. And distance is not... It does not have a gastronomic attribute. It can with certain things, but basically the taste, the marbling or, you know, the sweetness of a fruit or something like that, that's how it's judged. So if the best anchovies come from Sicily, then that's what slow food was about preserving. Not a, a an anchovy tradition that was happening in the north of Italy that had no chance of ever being as good as the original ones from Sicily. So, you know, it was always about preserving the best and helping local people invest and spend time in perfecting what they could be the best at. Um, you know, we have no business raising peaches in Vermont or upstate New York, but Georgia or the Ojai Valley, man, those are the best peaches. So that should be our peach production where they have the, the terroir and, as I like to say, the tetoir which is the French for head. You know, they have the land soil knows, but also the heads of the artisans and the farmers know. And it, it, it produces the best tasting foods. I don't know well, if that answered help- your that, question. That's helpful to me with my anxiety of seeing apples shipped in from New Zealand. But I think what you're saying is the thought process needs to be about slow, but I think also we have to bring in seasonality. It's it's more. It's mm-hmm. not so much that they're coming from New Zealand, but you're you're you should be eating apples in season where they're made somewhere in season, even mm-hmm. if that is farther away from where you live. If it's the best, although you know, apples is the one that actually can happen in a lot of colder climates and all of that. Yes, I just think that uh, you know, whatever the best apple producing regions of the world should be what. Anyone who gets into the apple business should aspire to the best. They should aspire to those regions and see if not, maybe they should try to become pear producers or, you know, do something else because, um, yeah. Uh, and my wife is a cheesemonger and tons of cheesemongers come locally and say, Hey, I'm only two miles away. I love my cheese, please. And she's like, I love you. And I think you're doing something great and your heart's in the right direction. It just doesn't taste as good as for instance, Parmigiano Reggiano or some of these other cheeses that are very famous. No, that's a great point. I mean, cheese has that advantage of being, because it's aged like mm-hmm. wine, more transportable than say sure. other thing. And local so, is great for salad. I mean, you know, there's tons of stuff that just actually does taste better because it travels less, and those are the exceptions. But, you know, uh, heritage breeds are always the best-tasting meats. So for special occasions, we believe that that's what people should be eating. You know, Thanksgiving, for instance, you know, eat the best turkey, not the one that was raised closest to you, unless it tastes the best. Yeah, or unless you can get great-tasting turkey close to you. Right. That's ideal. And that is our goal, by the way. I mean, we don't want to own all the rare breed genetics forever. I mean, I do envision Frank Reese, who is this godfather of American poultry, who raises all poultry. I mean, I do envision him one day being like the Johnny Appleseed of poultry genetics. And I hope that in 30, 40 years, when he's 110 years old and he passes, that, you know, he populates local farms, local farmers markets, and even backyard chickens uh, in Brooklyn, you know, with these better genetics, these healthier animals. And right, you're working with him on actually setting up because he's he's in central, north central Kansas. Yes, sir. And he's uh, trying to start an institute. It's called the Conservancy, the Good Shepherd Conservancy. And uh, thanks to this movie that came out, Eating Animals, that was directed by Christopher Quinn and produced by Natalie Portman, and to all these chefs that are behind him, Uh, You know, there's a lot of desire for him to build a conservancy where people learn about biodiversity and the importance of genetics to humane livestock production. 
And where would it be in Kansas, near where his farms are? Yeah, right near Salina, and it would be a big, beautiful building with an auditorium and a place for people to sleep and breakfast made. It could be a B&B. You know, right now we're trying to launch it with the agriturismo model, you know, so mm. people come, people visit, people see. We start a groundswell of support for them. And we hope it's a place where weekenders all the way to young farmers who want to spend a year there and learn everything uh, could go. And also people who want to study and school trips and 4-H programs. And, you know, we really want it to be about genetics because it's something that's not talked about as much as it should be. The importance of healthy genetics to the livestock that we eat. Well, and it could be the most exciting thing to hit Salina in quite a while. <laughs> yes, and, other uh, than the Cozy Inn, which is a fast food burger place, but it was a precursor to White Castle, and I must say it is delicious. But yeah, between the Cozy Inn and the Good Shepherd Conservancy, it'll be the go-to place uh, above Disney World and in California, I hope. Well, and for eating, you get to go through Kansas City to get there. And Have yeah. you been to Winstead's? Uh, no. Uh, what's that place? Winstead's is the long-standing, oh God, I hope it's still open, long-standing local burger place. It, uh-huh. it was like the drive-in models. It was like <laughs> what In-N-Out Burger should aspire to be. But any Kansas Cityan, who, which I am one, who uh-huh. goes back, eats a Winstead's burger for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Is that the one with the neon sign downtown? Uh, well, I'm, no, I'm, the one I always went to was off the Country Club Plaza, and I can't remember. Okay. I don't think of it as having a neon sign, but it might. We love the Rieger. The Rieger and Lydia's Kansas City, um, you know, Lydia's is an Italian restaurant, but the Rieger is, is really an American restaurant, and we love what Howard Hanna is doing there, and uh, yeah, we're big fans of the of the food there. Oh, that's all new stuff. I'm, yes. I'm way too old for that. Even, <laughs> o- even Oklahoma Joe's was new by... Wow. And, anyway, and, and uh, I, I've never thought about where Arthur Bryant's actually gets their their meat from it's all commodity but it's delicious like i say it's about the slow changing of the wheel you know it's uh nobody did anything wrong uh now but once you have information you hope that people start to move you know in the in the right direction so we've gotten a little off track of talking about heritage radio network itself but so i thought this was kind of a good question to kind of recap it you know with the 10th anniversary and this launch of the hall of fame to really celebrate all these different key figures in in the food movement that you've um, that the programs have brought to light in various ways, the various long-standing statues and newcomers. What what are you most proud of having accomplished with with basically launching a radio network that's lasted ten years already? Yeah, I mean, I think the real power of uh, Heritage Radio are the hosts, you know, and they represent basically every corner of the food universe. And their passion, you know, has changed, I think, the culture at large, you know, and they their guests have participated in over 12,000 shows. They're all broadcast live, you know, and archived as podcasts. And I think it must be the largest repository of historically significant food programming ever. And, um, you know, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, a lot of people, we say podcasts, but what's unusual about HRN is that it's also a radio station. Everybody comes in every week with rare exception, you know. Um, it's only the very, 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 very best shows that can call in and just send in their podcasts. <laughs> um, I don't know who you're talking about. No, no. But no, we actually, as a board, uh, you know, I'm on the board, and we, we set a limit. We said, you know, we don't want it to be more than 10% of our programming or 20% or 15%, something like that, because it is still a station. So it's not just a podcast network. It's also a radio station. And the fact that those hosts came in as volunteers over all these years, some people have five, 600 shows already, it's just amazing. And and I'm just sitting here thinking, partly because I love it and I love the emblem, is is it all started with a turkey? Yep. And he was one of the first donors, uh, Frank Reese. I was like, Frank, Frank not I, the turkey. Well, you're right, not the turkey. But I was like, Frank, can I get like, can I short pay one of your invoices $500 if I <laughs> send it to a nonprofit organization that will do great work <laughs> to promote your work? He's like, all right, I hope you're not full of, you know. I hope you're not full of BS here, but okay. So it was actually, yes, the first people to write checks to us were farms, farmers. Well, you were back to the virtual arc and you're, you were tithing. Yes, exactly. Just 10%. That's all we asked. 10%. 
I see. All yeah. right. Well, that's great. <laughs> and right. then uh, Hearst Ranch was our first big sponsor. There were a lot of humble pushes, but uh, a great heroic push came from the Hearst Ranch, which is, you know, the publishing empire. They actually gave us the cash to buy the two shipping containers and all the wood that decorated it and insulated it. So uh, that's oh, amazing. also that's- a farm. That's great to know because, yeah, I learned about that through Hearst Ranch because I actually grew up, I went to Hearst Castle in California in San Sinemian, which is sort of central coast, as a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they had lots of animals there, but I think many people haven't looked into how, you know, especially with all the lore of Hearst and those stories of how, right, they have quite a longstanding uh, tradition as a visionary of these issues, right? Yes, absolutely. No, they're they're definitely uh, big visionaries, and uh, it's nice to have that much money and uh, that much land because they can really let those animals free range 100%. So um, delicious meat. My friend Brian Kenny was also nominated or inducted into the Hall of Fame for his belief in us. So uh, it is cool. It's very touching when people send money towards a cause that has no track record. Those people become your loving best friends in the work world because they believed in you. And the people say, no, you know, we don't know you. We don't believe you. It doesn't sounds good. You know, those people, then they come back and say, hey, wow, you're so successful. And I'm like, we've been there since the beginning. I'm like, I remember you. You never helped <laughs> us back when no one knew us, you know, and then they, you know, have the tail between the legs. But and I, that's my job with Katie, the executive director. I'm like, this person was good. This person was bad. No, not really, but. <laughs> now you're getting off in the, the, the real biblical. <laughs> well, you know, you've, I think we have to talk to Hearst Ranch more about what they did, because I think that history is pretty pretty fascinating and not as well known as it should be. Well, you know why they gave, because Steve Hearst, uh, our buddy, uh, came to Roberta's for breakfast, and he's like, I love this place. I'm like, we want to start a radio containers <laughs> right here. He's like, done. How much can a shipping <laughs> container be? I'm like... Not much. So it's funny. I joked with him because they have like a thousand different magazines and Esquire and all these, you know, magazines, town and country, good housekeeping. And I'm like, this is the one media source that you started that can actually write great stories about you. All the other ones have like journalistic integrity. And we would, you know, we're like, we're, we're free. We have no corporate overlords, you know, overlords. We can just like really promote the hell out of you and we love you guys and so it's funny some of the most interesting places to learn about Hearst Ranch was on our radio station even though they own their own magazines ironic so we went from a turkey to a great piece of pizza in Brooklyn to dropping two shipping containers and here we are absolutely all right after the break Patrick's going to share his Julia moment stay with us we'll be right back are you enjoying this podcast Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we asked our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Patrick, now's the time. What's your Julia moment? Well, I have two, one personal and one personal, I guess. But uh, the first personal is when I very first was trying to start Slow Food. I remember, I think she lived in Central California, but also had a house in Boston. And this was almost pre-email. But, uh, you know, I sent her a letter, um, you know, asking her if she would help me start Slow Food. And I actually got a response. Um, She was definitely up there in years. She probably had a lot of other types of things going on and yet that she took the time to respond and connect me to some people in central California I think it was Santa Barbara and also in Boston I just thought that was fantastic and that she would take the time to 
to answer some 20-year-old kid who, you know, probably this was pre-spell check on the Italian computer, so it probably had <laughs> riddled with grammatical errors, but that she saw uh, that it would be important to respond and, and connect me to some interesting people who I still know. So that's my personal moment. That was back in 1998, uh, 2000, things like that. But yeah. really having launched the Celebrity Chef, as I said, Heritage Foods would be nothing uh, and a bunch of breeds would probably be extinct by now if it wasn't for these celebrity chefs uh, who command economies in agriculture and who demand quality. And she started that trend. Uh, in the medieval times, you can hardly mention a chef. Even in the Renaissance and the 19th century, you know, there are just not that many very well-known chefs. I mean, we can say a few, Carême, Taivant, Chicart, but now... Anybody, any American could probably name 30, 50 chefs by name. And that's pretty amazing. And she was the first one. So I kind of think we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Those are both very lovely. Thank you for, for sharing those. And, and give, give, you've given her credit for a lot. So um, I'm not the first one. Damn, Meryl Streep played her. She's <laughs> <laughs> well, she was paid to do that. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she did it well. All right. Well, thanks so much, Patrick, for joining us. I really appreciate it. I, I feel like we could we could talk and talk and talk. So we'll we'll do it again at some point. Todd, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening and joining us. So do follow us on social. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle, as always, is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. If you're not already keeping up with all things Heritage Radio Network, find them at Heritage Radio Network on Facebook and at Heritage underscore radio on Twitter and Instagram. To learn more about Heritage Foods, its farmers and offerings, go to heritagefoods.com and find them at Heritage Foods USA on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find Patrick himself at InstapatrickMartins with an S on Instagram. And if you're inspired to think harder about meat, Patrick's book is The Carnivore's Manifesto, Eating Well, Eating Responsibly, and Eating Meat from Little Brown and Company. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lawrence Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available wherever you find podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.